say again, welcome everybody and welcome to the Whitechapel Society's February meeting uh, 2021. So I want to start this introduction by just explaining that the original plan was for this talk to take place at our annual Whitechapel Society Christmas lunch at the Chamberlain. But obviously that wasn't able to happen last year with what's been going on. But if we had have been able to run this talk then, it would literally have been days away from the exact 110th anniversary of the events that we're actually going to be discussing this evening. So now it's 110 and a month um, away. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us. I think we've had a, this is the best crowd we've had so far. So it's great that you've all joined us. And obviously I'm going to say a big shout out to Jonathan Mengis and all of you who are listening to us on the Rippercast podcast. We hope you enjoy what should be a fascinating evening. And to find out more about us, our society, please go to www.whitechapelsociety.com. So we're having our own double event tonight. We have two speakers and they'll be looking into the events that took place in December 1910, when a gang of armed Latvian revolutionaries were tracked to a house in Sydney Street in London's East End. That led to a siege and a gun battle involving both the police and the army and no less of a personage than the then Home Secretary, Winston Churchill himself also made an appearance. So in the first half of this double header, Peter Clark will be talking us through the events of the Houndsditch murders and what led to what became known as the Siege of Sydney Street. After a short break, our own Sue Parry will continue the discussion by giving us a fascinating insight into the life of one of those brave officers present on that fateful night. Now, following on from Sue's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. So uh, please feel free throughout the uh, both presentations to put your questions into the chat area in Zoom, and we will make sure that those questions get passed on to Peter and Sue at the end of the presentation, at the end of Sue's presentation. So to start us off then, I'm going to introduce you to our guest speaker for this evening, Mr. Peter Clark. Peter was a City of London police officer for 37 years and has been heavily involved in setting up the City of London Police Museum in the Guildhall, a place where you can now find him giving tours. He's also a qualified walking tour guide, leading walks in the city covering crimes and policing in the City of London. So without any further ado, I'm going to hand over to Peter Clark to talk to us through the events surrounding the Houndsditch murders on the 16th of December 1910. So over to you, Peter. Thank you. Right. Share my screen. That's coming through now, Peter. OK. Yep, we can see that fine. I was a City of London police officer uh, for 37 years. And I now do uh, walks and talks about the City of London Police and crimes in the city. And tonight I'm going to talk to you about one crime in particular, the Houndsditch murders. Now, this took place on the 16th of December 1910. And it was the worst atrocity in the City of London and British policing history. In it three police officers were killed and two were very seriously injured. So having told you what the outcome was, let's look back to the beginning and the events that led up to this incident. 
So I'll start first by talking about the two groups involved, the City of London Police and the criminals. So for those of you who don't know it, this is the City of London Police area. It's at the very heart of London, the old historical centre of London, and now really the sort of financial business centre. Um, it's been added to over the years, but essentially it's very much the same size as it would have been in 1910. Uh, the City of London Police was formally established by statute in 1839, but it's existed long before that. And it, indeed, the way they worked and the way they were dressed at the time aided to Robert Peel when he established the Metropolitan Police in 1829. But when we get to 1910, the force has about 1,000 officers just policing the area, which is about two and a half square miles in area. And there are six police stations across it dotted here. There's Bishopsgate, there's one up uh, Moor Lane, one over here at Snow Hill, one down near Blackfriars, one near Cloak Lane, and then one down by the Minories. But the one we're going to focus on is Bishopsgate up here. So this is Bishopsgate Police Station, as it was in 1910. Uh, the site is occupied by another police station built in 1939. This one here had been built in 1866. And it stands on this site here, facing Liverpool Street Railway Station. And on the map, you can see here this blue square. This is the area where the crime was committed. And this is on the area that was policed by officers from Bishopsgate. And then we have the criminals. They were Eastern European and the, some of the criminals are shown here and we'll see more of them later on. Now, over the previous 30 years, there've been a lot of oppression and anti-Jewish discrimination in Russia and Eastern European countries. And during that period, about 3 million refugees fled to the UK. A lot carried on and went to the USA, but about 150,000 remained in the UK. And there were pockets of them scattered all across uh, this country. And East, the East End was one of those areas. The most of the Jews coming across were fairly young and shared the beliefs of their fellow countrymen. Some theorized about the changes they could make in their own countries, but then just got on with their lives and found jobs and looked after their families. But there were others who worked for change in their own countries. And to do that, they needed money to fund their, their plans. Now, they called these expropriations, although we call it stealing. Now, this was the plan of one gang. Uh, they, one of their members had been a jeweller, and he'd heard about this new jewellers that had opened in Houndsditch. And it was owned by Mr. Harris, been opened in May 1910 
and it was believed to be one of the wealthiest jewelers in this part of the, the city. In fact, the rumours were that in its safe there were £30,000 in cash and there was even some of the Tsar's jewels in there. So this gang thought this would be a real coup. Not only would they get money for their, their funds, but also they'd be having a go at the Tsar himself directly by stealing his jewels. So they did some recce's. And they established that the only way for them to get into the jewellers was to break in through the back walls. And that way they could then attack the safe without being seen doing so from the front shop window. So they would need to get access to these buildings behind in a street called Exchange Buildings. Now this is extra, the, what the buildings looked like in ex, exchange buildings. They were essentially old shops. There was a front door here, but these here were actually folding shutters, which allowed the shop to be open to the street. Now they weren't shops anymore, but they'd had a all they had for windows was this line of panes across the top and if you look at the plan here basically you went in the front door there were stairs to a room upstairs and then there was a door through to a single room downstairs and at the back of the shop at the back of the premises there was a small yard which had a sink at one side and a toilet on the other side and it was only about three foot wide and very narrow but behind it was this huge back wall and it was so large they couldn't actually work out which one was the jewelers now they established that number 10 had been rented for storage uh, one of the traders in the city was using it to store his christmas goods so they then went on to rent number 11 here and number nine and this was done in early december then they learned that on the 16th of december that this premises number 10 had been emptied of all its uh, goods and was now standing empty so they decided that the evening of the 16th of december would they would start the breaking into the jewelers behind here Now, the 16th of December was a Friday and the majority of the occupants of the houses in the area were Jewish. And so Friday was the evening, beginning of the Jewish Sabbath. So it was very quiet and all the shops in the area were closed. Now, the leader of the gang in this case was a person called Gardstein. And he'd worked out from his recce's that it would take about 36 hours to break through the back wall of the shop and then make their way through, break through this wall here. And then using this uh, oxygen tank, acetylene tank, they could then break into the back of the safe. 
and they would be able to do that without anyone looking in through the shop window seeing anything untoward so they started work at 7 p.m on the friday evening which meant breaking through the wall here where the toilet was now here's an aerial view of the shops uh, there's mr harris's shop here the yard is here and then these are the buildings on the other side this is number nine and then number 11's here and this is a photograph on the right of the yard which is uh this is where the toilet was and it just shows you how narrow it was as i say only three feet wide Now, once the gang started to break through that wall, that's when their problems began because they assumed there'd be no people uh, taking any notice of what was going on. But then the premises next door to Mr. Harris, number 120 here, lived a Mr. Wheel. He owned a fancy goods shop but he also lived above the premises with his sister and a maid. They'd been out for the evening, and when he got home about 10 o'clock, he was told by the sister and the maid that there was a lot of noise coming from the back downstairs. He went downstairs, but he couldn't establish anything untoward in his shop. So he went outside and looked through the window of Mr. Harris's shop. And this window here meant that he could see through to the safe. And obviously he looked through, there was a light over the safe and he could see that there was nothing untoward. But he could still see this, he'd still hear this uh, noise coming from the back. And he described it later as being like drilling and sawing and the breaking away of brickwork. So he wasn't happy. So he then decided to walk around to Bishopsgate Police Station. He didn't have a telephone, so he couldn't phone. So he had to walk around there. And this was about 10.45 in the evening. And as he walked around, he met a PC on his beat, a PC Piper. And he told him what he'd found and heard. So PC Piper came back with him. To number 120 he heard the noise and he decided to go around to the other side into exchange buildings now you could see a light coming from number 11 the light coming through these windows here and he knocked on the door this being about 10 past 11 in the evening knocked on the door and the way the door was opened by the person inside immediately put him on his guard. So what might sound bizarre, he said, is the missus in? And the reply was, no, she's gone out. So he then said, I'll call back again. And he then walked off and walked back round into Houndsditch. Clearly not happy with what was going on. Now, this is the map. Here's the premises. This is Mr. Harris premises here. 
and his plan was to walk round to Bishopsgate Police Station to get assistance. But while he was in Houndsditch, he met two other PCs and it was agreed that they would keep their eyes on the premises whilst he went to the police station for reinforcements. So one PC took position outside Mr. Harris's shop, keep an eye on that. And the other PC went into Cutler Street, which is the at the end of Exchange Buildings, Exchange Building itself being a dead end. So as he positioned himself there, he could look down the street and see if anyone came out. In the meantime, Piper went up towards Bishopsgate Police Station. And on his way there, he met another two officers and they came back with him by a more direct route back down to Houndsditch. And what they did then was one of the officers stayed at the end of Cutler Street and the uh, other officer being a sergeant went with Piper into number 120 to listen to the noise himself and then when he came out uh, he then liaised with uh, five other officers who'd made their way to the scene so what happened then was PC Piper was left outside uh, Mr Harris's shop these two PCs were left here and all the other uh, officers made their way round to exchange buildings. So this is what the scenes look like. This is Houndsditch. Mr. Harris's shop is here. So PC Piper's here. There was another officer here on the edge of uh, Cutler Street. And these were pictures taken at the time. So this, this premises here was actually under renovation. And then the other officer was in Cutler Street facing down exchange buildings. And this is exchange buildings. So you'd have this officer here looking down the street, keeping an eye on it. So at half past 11 that evening, all the other officers made their way into exchange buildings. Now, what PC Piper hadn't told any of them was that he'd already been there. They all knew he'd heard the noise, but they he hadn't told them that he'd been to number 11 already. So this is how it looked at 11.30. Where PC Piper here outside Mr. Harris's shop, an officer here, and then all these other officers down in various positions along exchange buildings. Now the lead person was Sergeant Bentley and he was accompanied by Sergeant Bryant and PC Martin and the other officers were further up the street. These being PCs but this uh, was a Sergeant, Sergeant Tucker. Now PC Bent, uh, 
Sergeant, Sergeant Bentley knocked on the door. A uh, person answered the door, but didn't actually speak, uh, and then pushed the door to. So Sergeant Bentley pushed the door open and then stepped into the, the small hallway and then started to walk into the room to his right. And PC Bryant and Martin moved forward behind him. Now, as he stepped into this room, there was immediately shots fired from a person coming through the back door and also from someone at the top of the stairs. Sergeant Bentley was hit in the neck and collapsed over the threshold of the front door. As he fell, the shots then hit Brian, who was shot in the chest and also in the hand. He staggered back and then fell against the front of number 10. PC Martin, in the meantime, had run down the street and gone into number five where the door was open. The gunman then came out of the building and started firing up the street. PC Woodens was running towards Bentley and was hit in the thigh and collapsed on the roadway. The gunman continued firing and Sergeant Tucker was hit in the chest and he collapsed. He was picked up by Strongman, PC Strongman, and taken up towards Cutler Street. And then all the rest of the gang came out of number nine and number 11 and fled up the street to make their exit. As they went past, Choke grabbed one of the gunmen who turned out to be Garstein, the leader of the gang. Now, Choate and Garstein then began fighting over the gun that Garstein had, and Garstein managed to shoot Choate several times in the leg. The, the rest of the gang had gone past, but seeing what was going on, started firing their guns at Choate and Choate fell backwards, and as he fell, he took Garstein down with him, which brought Garstein into the line of fire of the gunman, and he was shot in the back. The gang ran back, grabbed Garstein, and then made their way off into the towards Middlesex Street. So this is how it looked at the end of that shooting. Martin is down here hiding in number five. Sergeant Bryant is propped up against number 10 with shots to his hand and his chest. Bentley is collapsed against over the threshold of number 11. Woodham's is on the floor having been shot in the leg. Cho has been shot, it was later established, eight times and is lying on the floor. And Tucker is up here, having been shot in the chest, uh, later established actually in the heart. Piper has heard all this going on, come round, seen Tucker, run back into Houndsditch, 
and stopped at a, a car which was going past and immediately arranged for Tucker to be taken to the Royal London with this officer here. And they'd got to the Royal London um, at about 10 to 12 that evening, but having been shot through the heart, he is already dead. The next arrival at the Royal London is Choate. He's conscious but for some reason, perhaps because of his injuries, he has no knowledge of what's happened. He can't remember what's happened. And he's very seriously injured. They do try to uh, operate on him, but he's died at uh, half past five on the Saturday morning. And then Bentley is taken to Bart's hospital the shot in his neck has paralyzed him, um, but he is conscious and he's able to speak to officers and to his wife. But he then died uh, in the evening of Saturday. Um, so the other officers have remained at the scene, but no one has um, actually taken in which way the gang have gone. They just know that they fled off towards Middlesex Street. Now the gang carry and walk from Cutler Street all the way through to Grove Street. They carry Garsden all that way. And there in one room, he's nursed by two women members of the gang. But he's seriously ill so they then arrange for a doctor to come to the premises. The doctor treats him as best he can, but he's not happy with him. He wants him to go to hospital, but they refuse to let him leave the, the um, room. So he arranges to come back on the Saturday afternoon. And when he does so, he finds that Garstein has died he then goes away and notifies the coroner and the coroner then notifies the police who immediately rush around to the premises and there they find Garstein dead on the bed and the other one of the women still there with him and she is arrested uh, Garstein uh, these are pictures taken of Garstein um, they were actually used in a wanted poster uh, later on to try and get more information about the gang. Now, the other woman who was uh, there nursing him, here's what has happened. And she goes to a local police station and gives herself up and is then taken back to Bishopsgate. Now, from the information they gather from the women and also from evidence at the scene, they now know they're looking for more, um, more of the gang. And by the 22nd December, they've arrested three more members of the gang. So they now have five in custody, the two women and three men. 
and they are taken to the Guildhall Police Court. And this is a picture of the scene. They have these horse-drawn uh, police vans, prison vans, and they were brought to court there. They were the trial or not the um, the proceedings were very um, fair. They had a Russian interpreter brought in, and they were so concerned to make sure it was fair. They asked the Russian ambassador to make sure that the the interpreter they'd obtained was up to the job. So on the 30th of December, they are at the Guildhall Court and they are remanded in custody. So these are the first five we have. Now they then knew they were still looking for more men and women and they eventually tracked two of the men to a premises at 100 Sydney Street. And this was on the 3rd of January, 1911. Now, knowing the men were armed, they surrounded the building and brought in their own firearms. These are the sort of firearms they had. These are Metropolitan Police officers and their weapons were basically um, for sh they're called fouling pieces, basically for shooting ducks and things like that. Um, single shot weapons, basically. Not, nothing like the weapons that the gang had, which were Mausers, which were semi-automatic weapons, and far superior to what any anything the police had. Incidentally, the the City of London also sent officers to this but they chose to only send single men. No married men were allowed to attend in case any more were shot. Now a very lopsided gun battle ensued because obviously the um, fouling pieces weren't up to the, uh, what was available to the gang. So the Scots guards were brought in. Here's a picture of them taking up position um, Sydney, the premises themselves are here, just behind this officer. And there were shots exchanged. Now, the, the um, crowd control at that time was very lax. You can see at the end of the street here, there's the cordon, police officers with a cordon there. And if you look back from where these officers, these um, guardsmen on the ground here behind them this is the scene behind them uh, we've got people hanging out windows here and there are people behind these men here now you can pick out if you look carefully at this you can pick out the city of london officers uh, they've got their um cocks helmets also, they're much taller than the Metropolitan counterparts, quite distinctively there. So this gun battle took place. The building caught fire. No one's really sure how it caught fire, but it did catch fire. But the gunman refused to leave. And the fire took hold and had to be put out by the fire brigade. 
get more crowd control here. Um, when the fire had been brought out by the fire brigade, the two men inside were found to be dead. One had been shot through the head and the other one had died in the fire. So that was two more of the gang found. Hunt continued and in early February, three more suspects were picked up. Only one remained elusive and he had the uh, name Peter the Painter. And there's various um, stories about his role in it. Um, but he was never captured and he remains quite a mysterious figure. So at the end of the day, in custody, there were eight people in custody. Three women and five men. Now, they're all taken to committal proceedings to determine if they should stand trial at the Old Bailey. Now, at those committal proceedings, these four were found to have insufficient evidence to take them further, so they were all released. And at an inquest before the actual trial at the Old Bailey, it was determined that Goldstein was the murderer of PC Tucker, of Sergeant Tucker, which is um, relates to what happens at the Old Bailey. So the bottom four was sent for trial at the Old Bailey in May 1911. And then they were charged. These are the charges were firstly, Duboff and Peters were charged with murder. Anyways, the mur what they were charged with was as Garstein had murdered Sergeant Tucker and they were there to commit an offence. The fact that they were there unlawfully when Tucker was murdered meant they were also guilty of murder. So they were charged with murder. Then three of them were charged with accessory after the murder in that they had assisted Garstein after he'd murdered Tucker and therefore accessories. And then finally, all four were charged with conspiracy, conspiracy to steal. Now the judge was an amazing judge for the, for the defense. When he heard the evidence about the murder, he said, there's no evidence to prove that they'd shot anyone so they couldn't be charged with murder. So he said that that charge must be dropped. So the prosecution dropped that charge. Then he said, well, hang on a minute. They fled the scene. So they didn't know anyone had been killed. They didn't know anyone had been murdered. So how can they be accessories after a murder? And the prosecution at this stage thought we'll give up. We haven't got hope here. So those charges were dropped. So what was left was conspiracy to steal. 
Now, all of them said they weren't there. We were never in exchange buildings. Um, but unfortunately for one of them, Vasileva, her fingerprints had been found on one of the bottles in number 11. So when the jury returned to give its verdict, it found the three men not guilty and Vasileva was given, was found guilty with the jury saying that she shouldn't be deported. The judge sentenced her to two years imprisonment. But six weeks later, she was taken to the appeal court and the court agreed that the judge at the first trial had misdirected the jury. And so they said that she should be released. So she wasn't convicted. So at the end of the day, the eight suspects were all released and no one was ever found guilty of any of the murders except Garstein, who was dead anyway. So no one actually served any prison time for this. And after this, well, what happened to the officers? Well, the funeral service took place at St Paul's Cathedral. The Home Secretary, Winston Churchill, attended and there was a huge turnout. And it was the only time that police officers had ever had a funeral service at St Paul's. Sergeant Bentley and Sergeant Tucker were taken to the City of London Cemetery at uh, it's near Manor Park in the, up near Epping Forest. And PC Choate, his tomb here, was buried next to his mother, who he'd only buried a couple of weeks before the, the actual um, Houndsditch murders. PC Woodhams, who'd been shot in the leg, was pensioned off. And Peace Sergeant Bryant will hear from, from Sue very shortly. So that concludes the worst atrocity in British policing history. Okay. Great. Thanks very much, Peter. Um, thanks very much. Terrific um, maps on that presentation, Peter, and some great photographs as well. Yeah. So um, that was uh, really, really good. Okay, um, I'm sure that people do have questions. Please feel free to pop those into the into the chat box. Um, we will take a break now. Um, we'll give you just like 15 minutes. So it's now five to eight, we'll say. So if we can get everybody to come back um, about uh, uh, 10 past eight, and then uh, we'll get Sue to, uh, to continue. So, but in the meantime, thank you very much. Okay, so welcome back, everybody. Um, I hope you've recharged your glasses. And so we're going to hand on to our second speaker, who is no stranger uh, to all of us here in the Whitechapel Society. Um, Sue Parry is our treasurer and journal commissioning editor for the Whitechapel Society and has been a prominent organiser behind the scenes in helping us arrange all of our events along with the rest of the Whitechapel Society committee. So she's going to talk to us about one of the police officers. You can see him on the screen there, William Thomas Bryant was very much a part of the story that has just been so wonderfully described to us by Peter Clark. 
Uh, and following on from that, as I mentioned, um, we will be taking any questions um, that you have raised. I can see that you've raised some already, some great questions, and I'll make sure that we raise those. So following Sue's uh, presentation, we will start taking those questions. So without any further ado, Sue, I'm going to hand straight over to you. Thanks very much, Tony. That, that's lovely. Um, and as Peter has already told us, uh, the Houndsditch robbery left three police officers dead and two officers seriously injured. Sergeants Tucker and Bentley and Constable Choate were dead. The two injured officers, as Peter's already mentioned, were Sergeant William Thomas Bryant and Constable Ernest Woodhams. Uh, and it's Sergeant Bryant that I want to talk to you about this evening. If I can just give you a little bit of background to that. Um, several years ago, I was giving a talk to a WI here in Norfolk. And afterwards, a lady uh, named Sally approached me and she told me that her grandfather had been present at the Houndsditch murders. And her grandfather then turned out to be none other than Sergeant William Bryant. So there in front of me, Sally, Sergeant Bryant's granddaughter. And she told me that her grandfather had been a City of London police officer and he'd been seriously injured on that night in December 1910. And as a result, as Peter has already mentioned, he was invalided out of the police force. She said that from the time of his injuries for about another two years, uh, her grandmother, that's obviously uh, William Bryant's wife, had kept a scrapbook. And that scrapbook has been passed down through the family and it was now in Sally's possession. I'll come back to that photograph a little bit later on. And there is the front page or the cover of that scrapbook. Several weeks later, I met up with Sally at her lovely house and over coffee, she took me through the scrapbook. I then took it home and with her permission, I photographed, I scanned as much as I could before I returned it to her. So what I want to do now is to tell you about William, Thomas's, uh, William Thomas Bryant's life through the scrapbook. So first of all, I can tell you that, um, and this wasn't in the scrapbook, this, this was as a result of my, uh, my, my own research, that William was the first child of Robert Cooper Bryant uh, and his wife, Emma. And actually, that was something that Sally uh, didn't know. She'd done quite a lot of research on her uh, uh, one side of her family, but not on this side of the family. So I was able to supply her with in some information about her great-grandparents. And William Bryant, he was born in 1874. And at the time of his birth, the family were living at 17 White Street in Bethnal Green. Now I've got a map there um, and you can see White Street there. Uh, yes, there we are. There, 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 there's White Street. OK, uh, runs north south, crossing Sale Street that broadly runs east-west. Now, if you were to look on a modern day map, you won't find White Street. And as we know, Valance Road was called Baker's Row as far as the junction with Hanbury Street. It then continued north as Charles Street. Then it went on to be New Charles Street. Then it became Wellington Street and then it became White Street. So really White Street is the very far end of what we now call Valence Road. Um, in January 1896, all these streets were renumbered uh, and 
and they were all, sorry, renumbered and that the whole street was then renamed Valance Road. In fact, when I traced Robert Cooper, that's Sergeant Bryant's father, through the electoral rolls and the census records, he was at number 17 White Street uh, in 1878. He was there in 1880, 1881, 1882 and 1889. Uh, but in 1898, uh, the address became 139 Valance Road, which I would wager was still one and the same property. So 17 White Street became 139 Valance Road. And I know what some of you are thinking already, what number did the Crays live at? Well, they lived at number 178. But of course, uh, uh, Robert Cooper and his family, their time did not overlap the time that the Crays lived uh, in Valance Road. Uh, and there is a picture there um, of um, Sale Street uh, looking towards um, St. Matthew's in Bethnal Green there. Okay. In 1891, William H. 17 is listed on the census as an upholsterer. And it wasn't until shortly after his father's death in December 1898 that he joined the City of London Police. Uh, he married Elizabeth Louisa Hunt, who, who uh, Sally called Granny Lou. So obviously used her second name, not, not Elizabeth. So he married Lu uh, Elizabeth Louisa Hunt just 10 months later on the 30th of August, uh, sorry, the 30th of October, 1899. And in late 1900, their son, William Robert, was born. This young family of three were living at 27 tw Temple Dwellings in Bethnal Green. On the 25th of February 1910, a second son was born uh, and that was Cyril Henry. And the family are now living uh, in police accommodation at number 17A Rose Alley in Bishopsgate. Uh, and that's a picture I found of uh, Rose Alley. Uh, now, I don't suppose it looked like that uh, back in 1910. So it was with one son aged just over 10 and another son aged 10 months that Elizabeth had to cope with a seriously injured husband and her way of coping was to keep the scrapbook. And here are some of the many entries that are in that scrapbook. So close to Christmas, many of the get well cards, so, sorry, many of the get well soon cards were in the form of Christmas cards. The outraged people known to the Bryants as well as total strangers was absolutely evident. And here are just a few of the many cards and messages. Uh, I just love this card, uh, don't you? Absolutely love it. Uh, and the fact that you've got those brown sort of age spots on it. Um, you know, just, just gives it that lovely, very old feel. So that, that was just one of the Christmas cards uh, that contained uh, Get Well Soon messages uh, inside. Um, I loved this one, uh, this card here, best and truest wishes. I don't, I don't suppose we see cards today, do we, with uh, best and truest wishes written on them. Um, but that card was from young Bob 
who is clearly a family member. So there we are from young Bob to Uncle Will. Obviously, that's a William Bryant and a message there uh, in the top corner there saying that he hopes he'll get well soon and come round to have some pudding with us. So obviously, our uh, William Bryant is, is a bit of a fan of pudding. This was another fascinating card that I, I looked at. My, my first impression when I saw that card and you know, when, when I uh, took a photograph and then a scan of it was that, uh, that, that um, Jim there, who is the Grenadier Guard, um, was a stranger to the family. But it, very recently, when I showed my presentation to Sally, she said that um, Jim was in fact uh, William Bryant's brother. So uh, William Bryant's brother was in the Grenadier cards, you know, and he sent that lovely card, season's best and truest wishes. There we are, that's just one whole page from the scrapbook and you can see lots of little greetings cards and letters there. There were pages after pages of this sort of thing. Um, and I picked up just a few, I loved this one. Uh, this is a letter from Swan Street School in Mary's. Uh, dear Mr. Bryant, on behalf of the children and teachers of this school, I beg most tenderly to offer our heartfelt sympathy in the terrible ordeal uh, through which you passed last Friday evening and its consequent suffering and pain. We all earnestly pray that you may speedily recover and be restored to the dear ones of your family and to your noble comrades. Didn't the Victorians have a lovely, lovely way with words? And we've kind of lost a lot of that, haven't we? So there we are, a letter there uh, sent to Mr. Bryant, to Sergeant Bryant, um, you know, ex ex expressing their, their, their sadness, re really, at, at what had happened. Another one I picked out was this, 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 this uh, and, and Sally assured me this was the case. This is a letter from a stranger. This, this, this person was not known to the Bryant family. Um, it came from, I presume that's a lady in Hastings. It kind of has got a, uh, a feel that a, a woman has written this. And this was written to Mrs. Bryant. Okay, just a few lines to tell you how very sorry we are to hear of Mr. Bryant's being attacked by those wretches. Okay, dear Mrs. Bryant, I'm so sorry for, uh, I can only understand to be a dreadful uh, time you are having. And, and so it goes on there. And another lovely entry there in the scrapbook. And, and you know, when we just think that that letter was written 110 years ago. Fantastic. And oh, and just the fact that I touched it was was wonderful. There we are. Another letter here. And this one is from uh, Paddington Council. Dear sir, at the meeting of the council of this borough yesterday, sympathetic reference was made to the severe injuries you sustained whilst engaged in the execution of your duties on Friday. Uh, and the following resolution was passed, which I am instructed to transmit. Uh, that this council expresses its profound sympathy with the wives and families of the brave city police officers who were murdered or wounded whilst engaged in the execution of their duties on Friday last and, uh, and directs that a copy of this resolution be forwarded to the Corporation of the City of London uh, and to the relatives of the officers in question. There we are. And that's been sent to Bishopsgate Police Station um, and obviously was passed on to Sergeant Bright. Quite... Um, 
what effect that resolution would have had, um, I, I, I doubt very little. But nevertheless, it was the sentiments, I think, that, that were important. Um, there were a few telegrams in the scrapbook as well, and I, I picked out those two because I, I just thought they were just so fantastic. Um, if you look at the one at the bottom, uh, it's dated the 17th of, sept uh, of December, so that was the day after the atrocity, and it's from Lady Hickman. Um, I don't know who Lady Hickman is. Um, I, I mean to do some research and see if I can find out who she is. Now, she hasn't actually written this herself. Um, it just says that Lady Hickman would like to know uh, how the wounded policemen are going on. She wishes to express her deep sympathy with them. So obviously Lady Hickman's maid or maybe Lady Hickman's secretary has sent that on behalf of her ladyship. And if you look, if you read that one in contrast to the one above, the one above is from all the lads down at the Nick. Uh, and this is uh, your Bishopsgate comrades uh, send their good wishes for a happy Christmas and a speedy return to duty. Signed Penfold. Wouldn't you love to know who Penfold was? But uh, and if you can see the date in the top right hand corner, the boys at the Nick actually sent that on the 25th of December. They sent that telegram uh, on Christmas Day and both of those telegrams were sent to the hospital. And indeed, as, as Peter has already mentioned, uh, William, uh, along with Sergeant Bentley, who, who sadly didn't survive, both were rushed to St. Bart's Hospital. Uh, and this, this, this was also in the scrapbook. It's a postcard um, and it's not terribly clear. I don't suppose you can see the writing at the bottom there, uh, but it's actually a postcard showing Darkley Ward a strange name for a ward in a hospital, but darkly ward. So I, I, I therefore believe uh, that um, Sergeant Bryant uh, was on that ward and that's where he was treated and nursed. Uh, and in fact, William stayed in hospital until the 11th of January. So he was rushed there on the 16th of December and there he stayed um, until the 11th of January. And as Peter has already said, uh, he was shot in the chest and and he was also sort of shot in the lower arm and hand as well. So, you know, he was really quite seriously injured. Um, there were a lot of newspaper cuttings uh, in, in the in the scrapbook. Um, a lot of the pictures in the newspaper cuttings are, are pictures that we are familiar with. Um, I recognised one or two from Peter's presentation, uh, but uh, this cutting was one that I picked out. Um, and I haven't been able to find that cutting in the British newspaper archive. So I can't tell you uh, which newspaper it's from, and it says at the bottom there, I don't know if you can read it, Sergeant Bryant, who was shot at Houndsditch and is still under treatment at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, went outside today for the first time since he was wounded. He attended the resumed inquest uh, on Sergeant Bentley at the C City Coroner's Court, but he was not called. So, you know, nothing changes really, does it? There were some... Uh, journalists lingering around outside um, Bart's hospital there, waiting to catch a photograph. And there they got uh, Sergeant Bryant leaving the hospital to go and tend, attend the inquest. He looks as though he's perhaps crossing a road, doesn't he? Looking to his left and to his right uh, and looking a little bit gaunt. He has been under really quite an ordeal. 
Summons dated, next slide, uh, the summons dated here, 31st of January 1911, for William to appear at the coroner's court on the 3rd of February. So William has already attended the coroner's court, really just um, as uh, a part of like the audience, just, uh, just, just listening, but now he has to attend in his official capacity. Um, and what I found fascinating by that is and it's underlined there, uh, and, and, and I believe that was underlined uh, when it was sent to him, herein fail not at your peril. So making it absolutely clear that if he doesn't attend the coroner's court, he is in deep trouble. Uh, also in the, in the scrapbook was uh, a copy of the inquest into uh, the deaths of uh, Charles Tucker and uh, Walter Charles Choate there by a man unknown. Um, and so that's the front page. Um, and I, I, th I think there are, there are copies of these sort of on the internet, but of course that was a, a copy right from the time. And if you look on the right-hand side, my slide on the right-hand side, you'll see there that on page 32, uh, there is William Thomas Bryant's evidence that was recorded there. I won't go through it because Peter really, in a sense, has, has already done that. So the, the, the copy of the uh, findings from the inquest. Um, on the 9th of January, this, this, this has to be my most favourite entry. Um, you know, be easy to pass over in the scrapbook. Uh, and this is a memo. So the uh, Bishopsgate Police Station got a phone call. Uh, uh, a message was taken for Sergeant Bryant. Uh, and it says, and I've just got to read this to you. It says, uh, dear Bryant, okay. No, dear William, not dear Sergeant Bright, dear Bryant, the superintendent wishes you to go to the stores at your earliest possible convenience to be measured up for uh, inspector uniform, as you may be called to go before the king soon. Hope you are still improving yours faithfully. OK, so a little bit of a hint there. You may be called before the king quite soon and you know you need to get measured up for your new uniform because indeed he was promoted so he was Sergeant Bryant and now he has been uh, promoted um, I don't know this for sure and, I, and I'd welcome Peter's uh, uh, opinion on this but I believe he was promoted because it was probably quite obvious that he would have to retire quite soon uh, on the grounds of ill health uh, and if he was promoted that would have enhanced his pension so that was kind of very much an act of kindness so having been dropped the hint that he might be called before the king soon then this arrived there we are uh, and that has to be the prize entry in the scrapbook, there we are, an invitation to an investiture at St. James's Palace uh, on the 23rd of February to receive the King's Police Medal. Uh, and notice now this is addressed to Sub-Inspector William Bryant, no longer Sergeant Bryant, but now Sub-Inspector William Bryant. And indeed, on the 23rd of Feb February, William Thomas Bryant was awarded the King's Police Medal by George V at St. James's Palace. 
Uh, and there he is having received his medal. There are, you can see two medals there. Not quite sure what the other one was to do with, uh, but there we are, the medal on his chest there and the official photograph taken by an official photographer. Obviously not too far away. There we are at number 83, Bishop's Gate. And indeed, doesn't he look very smart uh, in his uniform? The one that he was called to the stores uh, in order to get. And that picture you saw right at the beginning of my presentation is just uh, a close up of Sergeant Bryant's face. And just to give you an idea of what somebody looks like uh, in a black and white photo and how just colouring in the face there when you bring the eyes alive particularly can just totally bring them alive and certainly when Sally saw that photograph she that the the, the colored in one she she was very very impressed um, and there we are uh, a close-up of the very medal uh, that uh, Sergeant Bryant uh, received and I'll, I'll come back to the medal in just a little bit later uh, now in the scrapbook the scrapbook contained the ribbon to the uh, the medal and you can see there's a picture of the ribbon there uh, but it didn't actually contain the medal itself uh, and as you can see the ribbon is looking a little bit frayed there and it, you know it, it had lost some of its color uh, but I'll come back to as I say the medal in just a moment and as we've already said William's injuries were such that on his return to work he was put on desk duties but very rapidly he was promoted to sub-inspector and he then retired on the grounds of ill health on the 6th of April 1911 and he was awarded a pension of 136 pounds 10 shillings per annum um, and um, I'm sure a lot of you know this but there is a website that you you can go on to, you can put in a date, you can put in an amount of money, uh, and then you can put in the date for which you would like that amount of money to be sort of uh, given the value. I'm not expressing that very well, but I'm sure you know what I mean. Uh, so I put 136 pounds, 10 shillings uh, into that website. I put in uh, the year 2020, uh, and that's uh, worth about 16,200 in today's money. So that's the pension that he retired on. Um, so uh, he was still obviously going to have to work, but it would have made obviously life easier for them. Now, on the 26th of November 1918, tragedy befell this family again when William Robert, that Sergeant Bryant and his wife Elizabeth's firstborn child, died of meningitis aged 17. By then, the family were living uh, at 54 Woodville Road uh, in Golders Green. And uh, there is a picture of the property that they were living at at that time. So now they are just a family of three. Uh, they later moved to Pinner. And in 1949, on the 8th of March, William died at number 19 Athol Gardens. And I know we've got a few people that have uh, zoomed in this evening that may well recognise that road or, or indeed that property. Uh, William's wife Elizabeth, she died eight years later in 1957 and so their only remaining child Cyril uh, inherited the scrapbook. 
Now, Cyril had married Nina on the th in the third quarter of 1939, and they started their married life at 120 Northumberland Road, um, which Catherine, my daughter, lives exactly two roads away, so in North Harrow there. Uh, the couple, they had two children. They had Robert and Sally, and of course, and it's Sally uh, that I met that night at the WI meeting. Uh, Cyril died in December 1975, age 65, and Nina continued to live at their home, which was now 45, 45 Elmcroft Crescent in North Harrow. Uh, and that's where Nina uh, continued to live. And of course, and the scrapbook was now in Nina's possession. So this scrapbook uh, was put together by what would have been her mother-in-law about her father-in-law. On the 18th of August uh, 1985, Sally took Nina, who uh, was now aged 73, on holiday. And sometime between the 18th and the 30th of August, the house that you see there in front of you was burgled. And the medal, which was kept separately from the scrapbook, was stolen. And there my story might have ended. And indeed, when I borrowed the scrapbook from Sally, uh, that was as much as I knew. And it was only when I did some research um, and I then found myself in a situation of having to ring Sally and ask her if she was sitting down because on the 22nd of July, 2015, at a prestigious auction house in London, Guess what came up for auction? Yes, you've got it. It was Sergeant Bryant's medal, complete with a ribbon. Ho, 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 very clever. The expected price was four to five thousand pounds and it actually went for six thousand pounds. How many hands it had passed through since it was stolen from that house in 1985? Of course, um, I and Sally will never know. Now, this information I passed on to Sally and I have to say she was kind of most shocked and excited both at the same time. And she shared that information with her son. And guess what her son does for a living? He's a Metropolitan Police Officer. Uh, and any more than that, I cannot tell you. Uh, I know it is under investigation and hopefully one day, who knows, maybe they might get that medal back. So what I want to do now is just leave you with one final item from the scrapbook. Oh, no, not quite. There we are. So I'm just going back to that picture of the medal. I got that from the Auction House's website uh, and a picture of the genuine ribbon that came with the medal. And there we are. That's what I want to leave you with there. Um, these um, pieces of paper were sold uh, for one old penny a copy and they were in aid of a fund being raised for the benefit of the friends of the victims. And I just love that, that heading there, the dastardly outrage on the city police by aliens at Houndsditch. You know, obviously think of Martians, but uh, what it means is, is, is foreigners. Um, December 1910 by E. Phillips. And uh, I just want to read you the first verse because I just think it's, it, it, it's wonderful. Tragedy most terrible has recently occurred, which thrills the heart of every Englishman. 
in duty's cause, brave officers by danger and by danger undeterred have forfeited their lives through risks they ran. And the rest of the uh, verses go on in much the same vein. So just finally, what I'd like to do is to thank Sally very, very much and the rest of her family for allowing me access to this wonderful piece of history. Thank you very much, everybody. Well done, Sue. Well done. And I'm sure you can all hit your applause buttons on the reactions button there. Well done. That was really interesting. And Sue, it's, just, uh, it's, it's nice that you ended on the language because I also was struck by the language throughout the book. Um, the name Penfold and Young Bob. Um, Sue, did you also notice the name of the coroner? Because uh, Ian picked that up. Absolutely. Wim Baxter. <laughs> Who else? Wim yes. Baxter. Yes. He gets yes. everywhere. So that was a really good spot, Ian. Yeah. Okay, so um, if there's any other questions, put them through. Um, again, some lovely comments here. So well done. Very interesting. Um, so is any other questions for, for either Sue or for uh, Peter? There is a couple that have come through, Peter. Some of them you may have seen. Um, I'm just going to go through a couple. Um, there's one from Lindsay. Lindsay, I'm just going to read this out. But if you want to jump in and, uh, and unmute yourself, please feel free to. Uh, and this is an interesting comment from Lindsay. Um, what she said was, I discovered that in September 1911, there was a sale of Cora Crippen's jewellery at Debenhams in the West End, and a buyer of a single stone brilliant ring bought for £65 was no other than Mr Harris of Houndsditch, whose premises was involved in the Houndsditch murders. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, what I love about the, the, these these sort of events that happen in history that, that remain with us, you know, probably forever, is that there are ordinary people who, who were going about their jobs and their lives who mm. kind of get get drawn into these these huge yeah. events. Uh, and it's absolutely fascinating sometimes to follow what what that where their lives had come from and where their lives went on to afterwards. And there we are, Mr. Harris, you know, so you know, only a few months later buying this fantastic ring. Yeah. Uh, and bringing in the Cripping story as well. Absolutely wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Nice one, Lindsay. Uh, she just wonders whether he sold it on. Sure, he did at a profit. Um, great question from John, John Reese. Um, did uh, again for Peter, uh, did the siege lead to any reforms or changes in the to the police in terms of how they responded or dealt with armed incidents? Ah, uh, this is whether the police should be armed or not. Um, <laughs> There was a lot of talk at the time about whether the police should be armed or not, but it was um, generally viewed by the um, senior officers that no, they shouldn't, they should stay as they were. All that did happen was they updated the uh, the weapons that were available for them, because what had happened at um, Sydney Street is they basically um, they were using officers who'd had. Uh, military experience and knew how to shoot a gun and they just took what weapons they had in their safes back at the police station handed out to those officers but they realized after that that these single shot weapons that they had weren't up to the yeah. up to par so they they changed them and updated the weapons made available 
Great, thanks, uh, thanks, uh, Peter. Um, there's another question actually that I'm um, I'd also like to ask um, as well. It was a, it's a, came from uh, Ian. Oh, sorry, John Reese. Sorry, another good one from John. It's about the fire, Peter, and what caused the fire. Um, and uh, so that that was a question. Do we know? We don't. There's wow. three theories. One is that they set fire to the building themselves because they were going to use it as to um, help them escape. Uh, the other is the police set fire to the building. Uh, and the final, probably more likely one, is that the um, a gas main was fractured yeah. in the in the fire, um, the gunfire, yeah. and that started it. Yeah, that's a good answer. I kind of think that's probably what's happened as well. But it's, uh, yeah, uh, I've always wondered. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, let's have this quick look again. Some really good comments, Sue. Um, very good story. Love the pictures uh, from Neil W. Um, there's a question from Ian. Um, Ian, it's uh, question is, it seems odd that two sergeants died before <laughs> the ordinary PC. I know. Who does that? Who puts themselves <laughs> in the firing line? <laughs> no, I think it was a case of I'm in charge here. Oh, you do. You follow me. A <laughs> uh, question from Louise: uh, Do we know what happened to the gang members following the collapse of the prosecution case? Good question, Louise. Um. Well, one of the women who'd been um, uh, released at the committal proceedings. She ended up in um, a lunatic asylum and died there. Um, but she was um, apparently quite unstable before, long before this took place. Um, the few others went back to, to Russia. Some went to America. And one of them, personal Jacob Peters, he ended up as uh, one of Stalin's um, henchmen, and he was re apparently uh, a lot of murders in Russia could be attributed to him. Uh, but then he fell foul of Stalin himself and was killed there. But there is a statue to him in uh, Riga now, which was his home. Okay. Interesting. Um, what's this one else? Um, apologies, John, it wasn't you that asked the fire question, maybe Ian. Um, uh, other comments about dastardly. So, Lee's mentioned dastardly outraged by aliens. This is this a comment in relation to the aliens act of 1905? Did the outrage lead to increased hostility for foreigners in London? I imagine it probably did, Peter, didn't it? Um, a little bit, and there were changes to the aliens act. The uh, subsequent to the eight, uh, 1905 one to try and reduce immigration. Because I say the majority of, I say the three million had fled from there over the three decades and come straight into the UK. But, but at the end of it, only about 150,000 actually stayed. The rest went on to America. So. Um, Lindsay mentioned that, uh, and I've actually seen these, several of the Mauser weapons are preserved in the Crime Museum and the City of London Police Museum. All, all the weapons that were recovered 
um, up until the the police museum used to be in the Wood Street in the city, and all the weapons were actually kept there. But when the uh, museum opened in the Guild Hall, they weren't allowed to have the actual weapons there because they are firearms. So they're now all stored at Bishopsgate. So the one that you see on display in the um, police museum in in the Guild Hall is a, a replica. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Do you know what Churchill's reaction to the judgment was? I can imagine. <laughs> I'm surprised he wasn't actually at the blooming court case, but I can't. I wouldn't have. <laughs> He, yeah, he, he, wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been happy, would he? No, but I don't know. I, um, I mean, the actual Sydney Street is fascinating in itself. You could do a whole talk about Sydney Street. But yeah. he actually, when he was asked if they could have um, soldiers to, to help at Sydney Street, he said, yes, definitely, get them from the tower. And then he apparently said, we can get the Royal Engineers in. They can tunnel under the house. And then he said, you can have field artillery. And if I don't know if you've seen it, but there is on YouTube old footage which shows horse-drawn artillery being taken through the east end to the scene. But they never used it, obviously. Wouldn't have been yeah. much left of Sydney Street, I don't think. <laughs> no, um, this is the last comment here, from, for, again, from Neil. Um, it's for you, Sue, actually. I'm not sure whether you've seen it. Um, and that's actually a really good comment. It's about the medals that were stolen. Um, and he's just asking, Sue, can you keep the society posted with the progress on the medals and whether it gets returned to the owner or, or any news, if you hear anything? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the problem with, with this is, as I say, that the burglary happened in 1985 um, and the Metropolitan Police's um, records um, system uh, didn't become computerised for another year or two after that. Um, I think the rollout was relatively you know, sort of slow o o over a couple of years. So, but certainly in 1985, the police report of that burglary would have been a paper one. Um, so in order to pursue um, this, uh, first of all, you've got to, uh, you know, Sally and her family have to, first of all, prove that the house was actually burgled. And secondly, in that burglary, the medal was taken. Um, and given it's now, what, 35 years since that happened, um, and of course, uh, you know, Sally doesn't necessarily remember, whether the police report actually says a, a medal was stolen, sh she wouldn't remember. Um so from what I understand, obviously, there was the scrapbook, which wasn't stolen. Um, and the medal was in something like a trinket box. So these burglars sort of just grabbed the trinket box and went and probably only then found out afterwards that one of the trinkets was, was actually this medal. So whether uh, in the police report it says that a medal was stolen, don't know. 
don't know. If it does, uh, uh, th then um, Sally would have a case. Um, Neil Watson has actually done some uh, research on this already. I, I shared this information with him earlier in the year. Uh, and he looked through the, um, the local newspapers for Pinner and North Harrow around August and then into September 1985 to see if there was an, a newspaper report, because that would help to prove that this house was burgled uh, and possibly perhaps even see if uh, the mention, there was any mention of the, of the theft of the medal. Uh, but he, his searching drew a blank, I'm afraid. So I do know that it's Sally's son's intention um, when he retires, which I, which I don't actually think is, is that long in the next year or two, to uh, you know, visit the paper archives of, it would be probably Pinner Police Station, uh, which are probably absolutely chock-a-block full with bits of paper and to see if he can find uh, the police report. And it's only then that he would actually be able to take it any further. There, there is, uh, well, there was um, a Scotland Yard um, sort of antiquities team that, that specialised in precisely this sort of thing. I don't think it was a very large department, might have only considered perhaps about three officers. Um, but my understanding is that that was disbanded a while ago um, as you know, the threat of terrorism uh, in this country has grown and uh, you know, obviously resources are always limited. So um, yes, I, I, it's certainly Sally's son's intention to see if he can take it further. But to be honest, I don't know that he holds out an awful lot of hope. Okay, well, we, we can but hope. Absolutely. Um, amazing, amazing to find it, though, So Amazing to find that the fact that it was up for sale and where it is. Sure. Can you imagine um, that phone call to Sally? Yeah. I phoned her, and my first words to her, Sally, are you sitting down? <laughs> <laughs> she says, hold on. Right, I am now. Why? What are you going to tell me? Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, the, the last question in the chat one, it's for you, Peter. Um, yeah. We talked this again about Churchill. And actually, I remember reading something about this as well. Church, didn't Churchill get a lot of criticism uh, at the time um, from Parliament and certain newspapers for getting in the way of the police and army? Uh, and this question has come from, from Lee Morgan. Yes, he did. I mean, it's the usual thing, and it's politicians have to be the scene. Uh, and trouble is he had to be protected so there were they trying to get on with their job and there's this person coming getting in the way there's actually film footage of him isn't there peter i'm sure i've seen film footage of churchill urging people to fire at them, you know? oh yeah yeah there's lots of <laughs> yeah. there's, there's photographs as well of him at the scene yeah yeah Okay, well, unless there's any other questions, and if people do want to unmute themselves, please feel free to. Um, but unless there's any other questions, um, I'm going to pass on my sincere thanks to two, uh, both speakers tonight. Um, Peter, thank you so much. It was a terrific story and really well told. And the feedback in the chat just backs that up. It was, it's, it's a very interesting tale. Actually, Peter, are there any books that you recommend on the subject? I mean, I've got one written by our own Don Rombolo, who's written an excellent book on it. Are there any books that you could recommend on this? Um, oh, Steve and I have got it. Yeah, there's um, one called The Gaslight Murders by a person called oh, Hol yes. Holroyd. Yes. James Holroyd. And another one is called The Battle of Stepney 
by Colin Rogers. I've heard of that one. There you go, guys. There's one book. There's the gaslight one. Yes, that's it. Oh, yes. Very good. Then there's that one. That Colin Rogers. That's the one, yes. That lives step me. You know, I love the way you've got those books to handle and you reach, you reach behind you and they're there. <laughs> yeah, and there's guns. Oh, there you go. What year was the Gaslight Murders uh, done, Lindsay? 10 seconds. Oh. 1960. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I've got a copy of that. It's a really good book. Mm. Okay, uh, Peter, again, with sincere thanks. That was really, really enjoyable. Sue, absolutely awesome. I love the story. It just, it just was lovely to have your, um, your presentation following Peter's because it just made, brought it brought its home a little bit. Fantastic photographs. And it was beautifully preserved, some of those photographs and cards, considering it's 110 years of age, you know, beautifully preserved. And um, I just hope that she gets those medals back. It'll be a lovely ending to that story, but we'll keep our fingers crossed on it. Okay, well, um, again, thanks a lot, everybody. Um, what was the second book? Matilda, what was the second book? So there was The Gaslight Murders. Oh, The Battle of Stepney was, this, was the other one you mentioned, Peter. The Battle yes. of Stepney. Yes. Um, I'll say Lindsay's popped it in there as well in the chat. That's great. Right. Colin Rogers. Thanks, Lindsay. Okay, well, on that note, um, we can wrap up the, the the session again big thanks to both of you guys terrific night and really good story well told and uh, we hopefully will see all of you again in two months time um for the next watch out society meeting so a uh, big round of applause everybody and uh, we'll see you all soon thank you Bye. Bye.